0: Uh, as we turn our hearts to the Scripture this morning, we press ahead in our survey of the Psalms. Jumping ahead into Psalm 73. It is uh, another one of those Psalms that you're just glad that God includes in, in His Word each of these different kinds of Psalms. They, uh, they reveal all the kinds of things that we deal with in our own hearts. And here is, here is a Psalm, really a Psalm of doubt. Uh, here's a guy who went through a deep valley as he wrestled with things... In, in struggling with who God is and how God deals with His people and, uh, and how He came out the other side, it is a tremendous psalm of perspective in, uh, in wrestling with and coming to the place where God is our portion forever. Hear then God's Word. Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others seem to be. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And therefore, pride is their necklace. And violence offers covers them as a garment. And their eyes swell out with fatness and... Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut through the earth. And therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. They are always at ease and they increase in their riches And then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places and you make them to fall, to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was Brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, and you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, they may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish and put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made Yahweh God my refuge that I may tell of Your works. Pray with me. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word that is living and true. And You know our hearts well, and You know that we too struggle and doubt, and are envious as we look around. But You also tell us the truth, and You give us uh, the keys to freedom, the keys to joy, the keys to contentment. Would You this morning set us free again, that we might indeed make You our refuge and our portion, forever in Jesus name we pray amen the psalmist opens with his conclusion and uh, and he reminds us of what is one of the most basic biblical truths and affirmations that any Christian would stand on truly God is good to Israel truly God is good to his people God is good and God is good to us to those who are pure in heart now, I do think he narrows the field right there that he's, that he's good to Israel uh, in a general way to the nation, but in particular to what I would call true Israel or a spiritual Israel, an Israel of faith, to those who are clean in heart. There are those in the midst of Israel who know and love and walk with their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength in the midst of a people who are often astray. And the promises, and much of this is spoken to those people, to those who are pure in heart, who love God out of a genuine heart. Surely, truly, God is good to Israel. This is the truth of the Shepherd psalm, that God is the shepherd of His people, and surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Surely, goodness will follow me. This is the basic, fundamental, foundation truth of God's people. That He is our shepherd. And He is good to His people. He is good to us. But we, while we know this, we live in a world that is messed up. It's broken. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And we will encounter and we will wrestle and struggle through a lot of different things as we go through various circumstances and experiences, as we encounter pain and brokenness in our own lives, as we have suffer losses, so, even though he starts out and he says, Oh, God is good, he says, Well, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story about how I almost fell away. I, verse 2, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. There's a very real temptation to doubt God's goodness. And that's where he went. It's not hard sometimes to get there where we struggle to understand, at least, and so doubt God's goodness to us. It's a real temptation because every one of us knows. We confess, we say, we believe. God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. He governs His world. He is in control. And so I have to harmonize that with my life and with the lives of of the people around me, as I see them experiencing life, getting things, experiencing things, it can be confusing. So he almost stumbles. He nearly slipped. He almost lost his faith in God. Plummer, one of the uh, commentators says, temptations that he was facing were within a very little of casting him into the gulf of atheism, leading him to deny providence and thus ruining Him forever. Providence is that idea that God is in control, and that God is in control of everything. And if He's not, if we deny His providence, that He's not in control, or not in control of everything, that there are things out of His control, like evil, and like other other things, then God, God is not God. At least not the way we understand Him biblically to be. He's not in control. There are other powers out here that that, that oppose Him and win. There are other things going on that He's just just not not in charge of somehow. And so to deny providence, to deny God's sovereignty, is in some ways to deny God. Romans 8.28, that well-known verse we love to quote, we know, we know, we know that for those who love God, Who are pure in heart? You know, verse one. You know, truly, God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart, we know those who love God. All things work together for good. God is good to His people. It's foundational. And so the psalmist is wrestling with, which some of us sometimes wrestle with. It sometimes it seems like either God is not good or God is not in control because this doesn't seem good. You know, especially when it comes to my life, there are many things that I just you know, you have to lift your eyes to heaven and say, What is going on? Sovereign King, oh Lord, the wrestling that can go on in our hearts because of my life. And he sums up his temptation in verse three. He sums it up in a sentence. He said, I was envious of the arrogant, right? When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And right, he sums it up. I was envious. I looked around me and I see people prospering in a way that I'm not. I see people taking vacations in ways that I can't afford to. Right? I see people, you know, fixing up their houses in ways that I can't, or buying new ones. I see people, you know, who don't seem to be ever sick. And I'm, you know, we're we're struggling with You know, major illnesses or different things that go on. You know, we we look at each other's lives, and we particularly, as he says, as he looks in a world of a people who are ungodly in the sense that they don't give God the time of day. And they seem to be prospering. And they seem to be at ease. They seem to have all the things that I wish I had and don't have. What's going on? with all of this. People who don't care a rip for God who are in rebellion against God are more blessed than me. That's what he's saying. That's what he is seeing. That's what you and I sometimes experience in our own hearts. In other words, the psalmist is saying it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair. Why do I have to struggle? Why, why, do, I have to, why do I have to struggle to make ends meet when there are people who hate God who are living on top of the world? I don't get it. It doesn't seem fair. Why do I have so many problems? Why, why do I have this health problem and those people seem to be at ease? Nothing ever goes wrong for them. That's what he, this is 4 to 12, right? That's what he sums up in all those verses. They don't have any pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're healthy and they have plenty to eat. They live high on the hog. They're not in trouble, right? They don't seem to have the same troubles that I have. They're, they don't seem to be stricken like the rest of mankind. They seem to be charmed or blessed or something, right? And so they're proud, right? Pride comes with that. You know, a lot of times people who, who stay more healthy or have more stuff or are more successful tend to. Um, tend to think they're superior in some way. That they're blessed in some way and better than other people in in some way. That often comes, pride comes like a necklace around those who, who prosper in this world as often or not, particularly if they don't know God and don't understand enough to keep their pride in check. Their heart overflows with follies. With Fallacies about their own goodness. They scoff, they speak with malice, they can threaten oppression. Oftentimes, it is the rich that oppress the poor and the ways that the world gets gain. A lot of the people out in the world who are enjoying their wealth and enjoying their gain are doing it because they're unscrupulous. And they oppress and they abuse and they use the system, and, they, and there are ways that people, and it seems to work. So verses 11 and 12, they can get all the way down to the point where they defy and scoff at God. They say, how can God know? God doesn't know. Like, look at me. Like, I do what I want to do, and I'm winning. right? I'm winning. And I've heard a couple of different people say that in different contexts. I'm winning. I'm a winner. Is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Verse Verse 12, they're always at ease. They increase in their riches. And so verse 13 is his doubt. And verse 13 is where we can get to if we're not careful. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and I've washed my hands in innocence. Why do I bother? Why do I bother? Why do I struggle? Why do I you know, strive to live a pure life? And to be righteous in all my dealings when it doesn't seem to get me anywhere, when it doesn't seem to get me anything. When when all of those who aren't trying like I am, they're not striving to be pure and to be righteous in their dealings, you know. Here I am tithing and giving away a good portion of my income and giving and supporting missions and you know in a building program to build another church and a new community and a new ministry out there. And, and so I give and I give like and all this. And why don't I have more? You know why don't why aren't I blessed like the world out there? I'm struggling, I'm sacrificing, I'm depriving myself. You know, my life would be if I didn't tithe and give money away, I could, you know, my life would be full of a lot more stuff. A lot more opportunities and I'd take more vacations because my I would have an, I would get a pay raise, you know, in some ways, you know, the money, but so here I am. I why am I not more blessed? If God is powerful and He's good to His people. Why do the wicked seem to prosper? And we sometimes seem to struggle. What's the point? Am I wasting my time? Is it all in vain that I deprive myself and struggle in all these different ways? It's a difficult question. Right? It, it really is a difficult question and it, and it threatens the very foundation of our faith, the goodness of God to His people. His power and His sovereignty. If God works all things for my good, then what's going on in my life? Why are the people prospering? Alexander says when you get to verse 14, he says, for all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked. Right? They seem to have no problem and no troubles and live at ease. And for me, it seems I've got daily problems. Right, Alexander says about this why they, the wicked, still increase in wealth and they seem secure forever. And I, I who have faithfully endeavored to avoid sin and to do the will of God, I'm suggest- subjected every day, all day, to privation and distress. Seems like sometimes I have a harder time of it. It's a difficult question. He says it's really hard to understand. Even as I lay it out there to you, maybe I've created some doubt in you that you didn't have coming in the door. Because it's a hard question. And he says he wrestles with it, right? He says in, going on in verse uh, 16, but when I, thought about how, when I thought about it, how hard it is to understand. It seemed a wearisome task. It made my head hurt trying to think about it and to figure it out. It was wearisome. Until... And 17 is the climax of the psalm. He's been, he's been working his way, way up and then we reach this, this the climax. He says, until, until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. Right? Everything was confusing and painful. Everything, I couldn't figure it out and I felt... Ripped off, and I felt like it wasn't fair, and I didn't understand it until, you know, as I sat out there, you know, gazing at my navel and trying to figure it out. He says, Until I came into the sanctuary, and things changed. I came into God's house. I came under the teaching of His Word. I came into the fellowship of His people. I gathered into God's presence, and things changed. Plummer tells us that God's Word, even in the Old Testament, was kept in the sanctuary. It was in the sanctuary that God's Word was illustrated in all of the different ordinances of the temple. And even as it is this morning, God's Word will be illustrated for us here in God's house. It's explained by the priests. All of those are still true today where God's Word is here. We sit under its preaching, explained by it, and we come and we see it illustrated. He says, when I came into... The kingdom of under God's word, and I understood the truth of it, it changed everything. I discovered some things as I drew near to God. I got perspective, I saw a much bigger picture than, than these moments of ease and prosperity that are being enjoyed around me. I got a much bigger perspective on life and eternity, something far greater, I discovered, he says, what I discovered was, verse 17, was their end. I saw that present appearances can be deceiving, and that there is a future reality that has to be reckoned, that has to be put into the equation, because the truth is we live in a fallen and broken world. And that we, like the people around us, there's not a nice clean line of blessing in the church and Cursing out of the church. We live in a cursed and broken world and it's evenly distributed. Prosperity and everything else. Things are not the way it's supposed to be. Inside or outside of the walls of this church. It's the world in which we live that is broken and cursed. Judgment is reserved and it's waiting where all things will be brought under God's judgment. Right now it seems that the present is the most important thing. And for many of us, we, we live that way. What we do this weekend, or what we do the ways that we want to experience the now. And it's very hard to get away from that. I think I heard, I was reading something just this week that said, like one-third of Americans aren't saving at all for retirement. And two-thirds of them aren't saving enough. Right? It's almost, well, why not? And the answer is because they're taking vacation, and they're buying new cars, and they're enjoying so many of the things they're they're fixing up their house. They're doing all these things. They're living all those things that now seem so enjoyable and seem so whatever what we invest all in this now but we miss the bigger picture of a day when there will be a reckoning on on those things. We 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 have a hard time seeing and living for deferred, you know, that kind of deferred reward. As opposed to the immediate reward, I'd rather have a jet ski, you know, until I go to retirement and I can't afford to pay rent. You know, and those, those are the things, it's the same kind of thing as we, we, it looks like now is the most important thing. The future seems so far away and insignificant. But the truth is, it's just the opposite. That's what the scripture tries to tell us. The truth is, it's just the opposite. Right now is not worth being compared to the weight of glory that will be revealed. Right now, is not even worth being compared. You know, that's what 2 Corinthians 4.17, we know that, the light and momentary affliction, whatever privation you're suffering, whatever you know, lack that you're suffering right now, whatever pain or difficulty you're encountering, whatever the light, it's a light and momentary thing compared with the eternal weight of glory that is coming. That we live, if we just live with our eyes down and our nose to the earth, we will feel one way. We will feel like it's not fair. We will feel like we're ripped off. But he says if we lift up our eyes, that what we're experiencing now, there is an eternal weight that is beyond comparison. We live for something far beyond ourselves. Prosperity and pleasures of the world are for a season. So 18 and 19, he says, truly, these folks that I'm envying, Stand on slippery ground. There is a fall that is to come. How are they destroyed? In a moment. Swept away in terrors. That language, slippery places. They fall to ruin. They are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away. It's not as it appears. Job 20, verse 5 says, the exalting of the wicked is short, but the, the joy of the godless is but for a moment. Do I envy that, right? And that's where we get that we, because it seems the present seems so important, and so that we envy that. First Thessalonians five says, "You yourselves are fully aware. You know, brothers and sisters, that the day of the Lord will come. It will come like a thief in the night." Well, people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction, just like it says here, it will come in a moment, they're destroyed in a moment, right? Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. We know, we know there is a day coming. We know, we know that it's more than this world or this life. All these arguments and doubts that he was struggling with made a lot of sense. And they make a certain sense, if you don't see the big picture, right? If we can't see beyond the moment. Proverbs fourteen twelve tells us there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, is the way of death, right? And so there is that, you know, that we are experiencing. We're looking. There's a wide road. Jesus tells us there's a wide road that leads to destruction, and there's a narrow way that leads to life. Excuse me. There is a way that seems right to a man. It's a wide road. It's an easy road. It's full of all kinds of things that this world has to offer. It seems wonderful, but in the end, it doesn't take you where you want to go. Verse twenty is one of those verses that's really, excuse me, powerful to me in the way the image that it draws of God on that day. It says in verse 20, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when You rouse Yourself, You will despise them. Those who despised You. You will despise them like a phantom. right? And that's what they're saying about God in verse 11. They're saying God is the phantom. How does God know? Does God have knowledge? You know, God's not doing anything about it. So they, they strut about the earth like they own the place. Right, their tongue it says struts about the earth, and they treat God like the phantom, the one who's far away and removed, the one that doesn't have any real impact or meaning for it. And it says, on that day, the day is coming when God will arise. And when he does, the creator, nothing scarier in my mind, will despise them like a phantom. My friends, he says, when I was embittered, verses 21 and 22, when I was embittered with envy, when I was in that place that I got to, I was like a brute beast. I was ignorant. You know, I was like a dumb ox. I, I couldn't see. I couldn't understand. But God has delivered me from all of that. Right? When I came into the sanctuary of God, I came under His Word and I saw the big picture and I know then the truth of His, of His Word. And so let me just try to apply this in a few ways as we, as we bring a close in here. This whole <clears throat> picture um, tells us, the first thing that this psalm tells us is that we need to fight for our faith. Right? That we live in a world, it is not hard, it is not hard to fall into doubt and temptation. And this is a temptation as we see, you know, the the things that we deal with are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he was looking at the world and envying it and longing for it. And so we have to fight for our faith, right? We have to stay close to God's word. It's easy to lose perspective. And pain does funny things to people, suffering does funny things to us. We don't think clearly. We don't think straight when we're in pain. And it's very often that in times of pain, we will be tempted to doubt the goodness of God. 1 John 2, it says, All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, all of the things that he's been envious of. That's a list of the things the psalmist has been envious of. It's not from the Father, but from the world. The truth is this, the world is passing away. All of those things that they think are everything are passing away with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Oh, my friends, how to capture that sense You know, and to live for that. Whoever does the will of God no, it is not in vain. Have I washed my hands in, in, in vain? Have I stayed pure? Have I sought to live that life in vain? And the answer is no. Those who seek to do the will of God will abide forever. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so, I think in verse 17 we see the importance of corporate worship. Right, he says, until I came into the sanctuary of God, right? Until I was with God's people, until I came back under the hearing of God's word and the truth, that I got perspective and I could think straight and have my my hard, my unworthy thoughts of God rebuked, you know, where I can be reminded of his goodness, when I can be reminded of the shortness of life and the longness of eternity, when I could see, you know, when I could see straight and see clear. The importance of corporate worship. We have to fight for our faith. And appearances can be deceiving. Everything will be brought into the light at the judgment. But until then, things are not the way they're supposed to be. And appearances can be deceiving. Jesus says the first will be last. Last. Right? To remember that as I see those guys who seem to be first, who seem to be enjoying all of those things that I'm envious of in some ways, to understand they will be last. And those who are last shall be first. Those who had different priorities, different goals, different values, contrary to the world. And third, not only must we fight for our faith and fight the the. Appearances that are deceiving, but third is to trust in the present goodness of God. And that's where the psalm begins and ends and has it in the middle. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made Yahweh God my refuge. And in the middle he says, nevertheless, verse 23, nevertheless I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. In the present, right now, it may not seem like it at times, and I may not feel like it all the time. When I'm seeing everybody else enjoy something, what I have they may not have, which is the hand of God holding mine. Isn't that amazing picture that you hold my right hand? I imagine when I was, you know, helping my son cross the street, you know, or something, where I have his hand, and what keeps him safe is not that he has my hand. He wasn't very strong, but I've got his. I'm not going to let him go. I think it's exactly what Jesus meant when He said, you know, I know My sheep. I lay down My life for the sheep. Right? And they are Mine. The Father has given them to Me. And none shall snatch them from My hand. I've got them. Right? You hold Me by My right hand. I am secure in Your grip of grace. Tripp says, why does the devil want to get you to think that you have been chosen for particular suffering? He does so because he wants you to do the one thing that will weaken you and ultimately destroy your ministry, destroy your joy, your hope, your faith. He wants to do that one thing. He wants you to begin to question the presence and the goodness and the faithfulness and the grace of God. It's the first temptation in the garden. Or the, 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 the serpent tells them, you know, God knows that when you eat of it, you'll see the knowledge of good and evil. Like you'll, you'll have, you know, God's holding out on you. God's holding out on you, and that's why He doesn't want you to eat that fruit, right? That's sometimes how we look at the world God's holding out on me. You know, I'm, I'm, is it in vain that I'm holding back? He wants us to doubt the goodness and the grace and the faithfulness of God. That He is not holding out on us. That He does work all things together for the good of those who love Him. That He's at work in my life, making me more like Jesus and preparing me for an inheritance that this world can't even begin to imagine. That's what the Scripture says. The Christian faith is a faith that trusts in the promise of future grace. Right? It trusts in a future grace. That's what verse 24 tells us. You guide me, as you hold my hand, you guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you will receive me into glory. We live for that day. We live for that day. If you don't live for that day, you have not understood the Christian faith. You have not understood that what you do with your money and your time, you know, how you live your life and how you treat people, if you're not living for that day, then all of those things, you're misunderstanding, you're probably getting them wrong. Because if all those things, we don't do them in the light of that day, we can't, we can't see straight. We can't make the good decisions. He says, and afterward you will take me into glory. 1 Peter 5, he says, you have called me to an eternal glory in Christ. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen are transient. And they are deceiving. And I will... I will Envy them in vain. So I don't look to the things that are seen. I look to the things that are unseen because the things that are unseen are eternal. Life is short. Eternity is long. We need to fix our happiness on that which is eternal and cannot be lost. Is God your chosen portion? Is God your chosen portion? That's where the psalmist ends. He is my... Verse 26, My flesh and my heart, they may fail. I may suffer. I may die. I may wrestle with you know, being deprived in this life. My flesh and my heart, they may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and He is my portion forever. He is my chosen portion. And He is enough. He is enough for time and eternity. It's what Moses on the whole life of faith, Hebrews 11, it says, Moses, by faith, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God and rather to be mistreated than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward, to a future grace. And my friends, that future grace is what shapes everything that we do it's why some would get up yesterday morning on a Saturday morning to be at a church at eight o'clock on Saturday, which the world which lives for the weekend. And we might choose to get up on Saturday and go so that the, clothe, the poor are clothed. We might go that those who are in crisis are cared for and supported. Why would we take our time, you know, that treasure that the world does what it does with, and take it and invest it and give it away, pour ourselves out, you know, and take money that I could use. On a vacation and and use it to build a church, you know, or use it to to tithe or to give into. Why would I take my resources and that would make this life more blessed and give it away? And it's because this world is not my home. We are strangers and aliens here. We live for a future grace which sets us free to seek first the kingdom of God. In His righteousness. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank You that You have loved us with an everlasting love. And You have given us an eternal life. A hope beyond all hope. That in the ages to come, You will show to us the riches of Your grace toward those who have loved and trusted You in time. That You will pour them out in eternity. Oh God, set us free from the love of the things of this world. The pride of life and the lust of the eyes and the desires of the eyes and of the flesh. Set us free. All of this comes from the world. We know it does not come from You, Father. We know that those who do Your will will live forever. They abide in eternity. Oh, so capture our hearts this morning that we would live for You. That we would love for You have a greater love for You than anything that this world has to offer. Oh, Father, be our chosen portion, our inheritance, our treasure. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.